You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, today we're going to, in our first, uh, oh, what is it, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, third day of lockdown in Victoria. Hopefully you are all keeping COVID safe. Uh, let's hope it all sort of dissipates and this uh, circuit breaker will actually get us all back into line in regards to a relatively easy uh, trend, uh, you know, move, movement and, uh, you know, getting back to normal existence. However, it is pretty surprising how quickly the cat got out of the bag. Uh, so um, it, worthwhile <clears throat> washing those hands every time you come in and out of a place, that sort of thing. Um, also, uh, even though sanitising your hands is apparently, uh, you know, the thing to do, actually doing a thorough uh, soap wash is better. That's just a tip. <laughs> so I, I've been told by uh, people who are completely obsessive about these sorts of things that uh, when you when you come in and out of a place, it's a good idea to wash hand wash uh, your hands uh, separate from the uh, sanitising because the sanitising doesn't actually remove all of the uh, stuff you're trying to get rid of. Anyway, by the by, um, we, today we're going to go to Sydney. First up, we're going to uh, talk to Suzette Mead, assuming everything goes to plan. I always feel a bit tremulous when I start a program and tell everybody what we're expecting to have on the program. I got rung up by somebody who told me that I instructed me that I needed to tell everybody what was going to be on the program before we start, because then they can uh, work out when they're going to listen and when they're not. But, uh, and, you know, he wasn't going to dilly-dally with podcasts or silly things of that nature, which, of course, we do do. Um, But um, uh, hopefully everything will go as planned because, of course, this is a live radio. Uh, We're going up to, we're going to talk to Suzette Mead for, uh, there's this really big stoush going on in Sydney, which you may be aware of, around a... um, a uh, elderly building called Willow Grove. It's over a hundred years old, and it's in the sights of de- uh, developers uh, in the process of the uh, redevelopment of a site for the uh, powerhouse, new powerhouse um, building uh, exhibition space, which is uh, it, it itself has uh, been a long battle as well. Anyway, there's lots of uh, strange elements going on and Sydney is full of strange developer stories. But uh, there's been a a community action group and they've sort of formed a kernel and created a sort of a resurrection of green bands 
And uh, I'm going to talk to Suzette Mead, who might tell us a little bit about this. She's from the North Parramatta Residents Action Group that's been in battle over uh, Willow Grove. We're going to follow that up with Greg, Greg Rolls. If you're a listener of Earth Matters, uh, Greg Rolls is a compatriot, uh, for, a former broadcaster for 3CR. And uh, he's been uh, spending a bit of time on top of a tank in uh, Brisbane uh, as part of a week-long festival, Disrupt Land Forces, uh, the Land Forces Weapons Expo. You may have listened to Friday Breakfast, and we're going to do an on ongoing coverage of what's going on in Brisbane because, of course, the... Uh, uh, weapons-led recovery it, it seems to be high on the agenda for the LMP federal government and amongst other unsavoury elements. And uh, there's, a fest, there's a Lands Forces Weapons Expo going on in uh, Brisbane at the moment and, of course, a parallel uh, festival of disruption going on. And uh, so we're going to talk to Greg, who's going to tell us about what it's like to uh, stop a tank before it can actually cause any further trouble. Um, we're going to f listen to Over the Wall. Peter Davis is back and he's going to uh, give us some understandings of uh, some of the social security elements uh, that affect all of us. And uh, this is the week that was. Kevin's going to uh, give us a sharp, uh, sh short um, rundown of the week in a satirical manner and then we're going to listen to Alison Pennington if we have uh, she's uh, her piece is um, short term sweeteners permanent ripoffs uh, an analysis of the budget or an overview of the budget that was uh, part of a fantastic forum put on by life uh, living incomes for everybody that they had on Thursday um, Thursday night fantastic range of speakers and uh, this is just one of them uh, giving us a uh, dr drilling down into some of the flim flam that uh, is, has been going on in the uh, aftermath of a pretty appalling budget, actually, when you consider we're in the midst of uh, a time of climate emergency. Uh, and... Uh, also uh, suppressed wages and insecure work. So uh, you can see where the federal Liberal government's bread is buttered. There was an interesting thing that before we move on, um, we, we were just listening to uh, Stick Together, which was focusing on the uh, uh, kids' strike, the uh, student uh, strike for climate that was held last Friday. Uh, not, not last Friday, the Friday before right, and um, 21st of May. And um, the, uh, the something else came out of the federal court, which you may have heard about, which was this, I mean, it was, the headline was um, that uh, politicians have duty of care to protect children from climate change, which was a, a federal court ruling. Now, this is a classic case of one step forward and, one, uh, and two steps back because the... Uh, the court found that uh, the, what was at stake was uh, was uh, the proposition that um, Susan Lay, who's the uh, Minister for uh, Environmental 
destruction by the sounds of it. But anyway, by the by, um, they were arguing that to the the kids were arguing that. Uh, um, they had uh, lay has a duty of care to them and other children, and that the court should grant an injunction preventing her from approving an extension to the Vickery coal mine uh, owned by Whitehaven Coal and located near Gunnedah in New South Wales. Now, despite the fact there was a ruling that uh, no, politicians do have a duty of care. The um, court did not uh, said the judge said that uh, um, that he he was not satisfied that a reasonable apprehension of breach of the duty of care by the minister has been established and dismissed the claim for an injunction, which then led. Uh, White uh, Whitehaven Cole to put out a statement saying, our consistent position has been that this legal claim was without merit. The company sees a continuing role for high quality coal in contributing global CO2 emissions reduction efforts while simultaneously supporting economic development in a near, um, in our near region. Right? There you go. So the weasel words that uh, there's, there is actually something called clean coal. So one step forward, two steps back. So there you go. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a National People's Inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Suzette Mead on the line. G'day, Suzette. How are you? Good morning. Excellent. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, yeah. We're we're really interested. I know we're in Melbourne and you're in Sydney, but you guys have been in Parramatta. You're part of the North Parramatta Residents Action Group. You've been in battle over Willow Grove. Can you give my listeners an understanding of what's at stake? Sure, no problem. So in Parramatta, um, our residents, group have been fighting for five years now to save an 1870s Victorian Italian villa, which sits on the Parramatta River. Um, It's an extremely rich social history building in women's stories, as well as being obviously architecturally significant, being the only one of its kind left in the Parramatta CBD. However, the state government has acquired this land from the local government to move a museum called the Powerhouse from the city to Parramatta and in that demolished building. 
And we say, now, museums shouldn't demolish heritage. They should embrace it. So we've been fighting in the Upper House Inquiry for five years, petitions, all the normal community-based outrage. Um, and last year, we turned to the CFMEU and requested a green ban, which we got. Goodness me. So that's fabulous. It's but a... it goes on. Yeah, it goes on. <laughs> we now have a legal case with the Land and Environment Court. So we've really got a multi-pronged um, campaign. We've, we've, we're trying to take that on with the legal system and the planning legislation, uh, as well as, um, you know, in, in the spirit of Jack Mundy and communities and unions working together, we also have the Green Ban. Now, I understand that uh, they've, uh, the developers or the uh, pe- people who want to knock it down have covered it up, but that uh, uh, community and CFMEU people have been monitoring the situation. Yes, so uh, earlier last week they um, covered, well, I mean, they covered the entire site with big black hoarding so we couldn't look at it um, <laughs> because it's very beautiful and we've had a lot of campaigns of people sewing um, fabric hearts and covering the fence because the lady that built it, Annie Gallagher, in in the early 1870s was a very entrepreneurial uh, haberdashera in Parramatta. So we've we've got all these connections with women and sewing and then it became a maternity hospital. So there's always owned by women and owned by another woman, our Premier Gladys Berejiklian now. But we're always trying to pull these heartstrings and narratives of why this social history is important to retain. And all they're doing, the government is trying to cover it and yeah. block it. And they've covered it with scaffolding now so we can't see from another side. But we have watchers everywhere. We have them up high through fences. And as you said, the CFMEU are about 4,000 workers in Parramatta at the moment on other sites who regularly pop down for a visit and just check what's going on. This is fascinating. What? Why does the, this? I mean, I do know that the powerhouse redevelopment, or mm. re, that that in itself has has oh. had a huge, as well as sort of a kind of a tinge of corruption about it. Um, you know, is that, that right? The entire um, premise of the project has been fraught with um, with controversy. You're correct. Um, from museum experts, from heritage experts saying that it's not even a museum from the plans we're seeing. It actually appears more to be a conference centre. Oh, my God. Um, So museum experts from the powerhouse who developed the original Ultimo site are saying it's not even going to have the right facilities for displays. Um, It's got a microbrewery in it, 30 apartments, um, 600 square metres of retail, so we're losing this magnificent heritage and story of Parramatta for not even a museum, hence the irony. Um, but having the CFMEU um, for the past year take that principled action to stand up for the community has given our campaign such a boost. And since then, we've had further unions join. We've had the um, MUA come on board. We've had the Teachers' Federation, the Nurses and Midwives. The PSA, which are the union that represent the museum staff, so it's it's just grown and grown so much so that they actually moved May Day, March from its traditional home in Sydney CBD to March in Parramatta this year to support the Green Band. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Because um, it brings so many things together, doesn't it? Because if we do go back and think about the green bands, uh, it's exactly the same kind of uh, developers' wet dream, destroying community and society, uh, holus bolus, which was actually halted. And it's the same kind of characterisation here, isn't it? Absolutely. We are seeing the rocks reborn in this battle in Parramatta. And this was the last green band that um, Jack Mundy was actually um, um, a part of. Unfortunately, um, he had passed by the time we'd announced it, but we actually had the green band um, approved earlier in February 2020, but with, with COVID, we had to hold off um, coming out and doing a public announcement and having some rallies. So this was this green band was actually called in his honour, um, and Jack has a lot of connections to Parramatta, where he first came down from um, from the Tablelands in Cairns to play football in Parramatta. Um, we've actually got two green bands in Parramatta. We have another one that Jack announced with me in 2015, 26 hectares of um, uh, a heritage precinct that holds a convict site for women. So there's a lot of connection with Jack Mundy and the Green Bands in Parramatta, and we're really proud of that. Can you tell me what uh, Berejikli and... Uh, uh, I mean, generally speaking, it's like this idea of going off to war. You have to present to people... Uh, that you're uh, doing a good, a, a greater deed, you know, for humanity by going to war and killing people than if you stayed at home. I know, you know what I mean, like, that, you know, you're mm. defending the uh, democracy or, you know, something, mm. right? And now, uh, obviously, she's using the cover of this idea of uh, the exhibition space as a way of uh, getting the Ultimo site, which I'm assuming is a very lucrative site for developers. Absolutely. Which is the real reason for why it's being moved, right? Because it's actually mm-hmm. central. Absolutely. This this whole campaign is so multi-pronged. It's, it's basically stealing a wonderful, long-time-loved cultural institution from Ultimo to clear the land for government development because it's prime in ultimate near Darling Harbour. And um, then coming out to Matt under the guise of, you know, this cargo cult of giving us Westies some culture by destroying our very culture. <laughs> you know, there's no winners in this in a community. There is a winner and it's not community. Right, so people are staunch. Oh, absolutely. There, there will be um, combat. It's, if, if we are not successful in this court case, it will be combat. People um, are very much ready to fight for this. And we had 5,000 um, people march on May Day with the unions. And um, people are ready for war. And we will tie ourselves, as they did in the rocks with the BLF, we will tie ourselves to the building, to the machinery. When do you hear about the uh, court case outcome? So this week we had a two-day hearing um, with the Land and Environment Court with our barrister and the justice uh, will make a determination in about two weeks. Um, They're basically arguing the, um, I guess, the law 
This isn't a merit argument, this is judicial, so they're arguing that the government failed to show any feasible alternatives, which they were meant to, of other sites that may be more suitable, or including Willow Grove, because they didn't show any attempt to do that when it was promised by the Premier to do so as well. So possibly about two weeks' time. So during that time... We're doing a lot of fundraising because um, this is pretty much barbecues and cake stalls to finance the barrister. So we've been blown away with um, donations from the community. In fact, we, we had a group of nuns in Parramatta called the Sisters of Mercy, which do a lot of humanitarian work, make a really substantial donation yesterday, which has just floored me. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. That's great. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more strength to your arm. Thank you. Thanks, Annie. Thanks for talking to me. No worries. Bye-bye. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio.
Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And you're back with Annie on uh, Solidarity Breakfast. And I thought that was a highly appropriate ID for uh, a chat with uh, Greg Rolls, who has been uh, uh, living it up in uh, Brisbane uh, at the Disrupt Land Forces Festival. How are you going, Greg? Yeah, good morning, Annie. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. It's nice to hear your voice again, uh, being a a 3CR uh, old hand. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a little while, but it's, uh, it's good to be back on 3CR, and uh, good morning to everyone down on the Coolum lands. Hope yeah. you're doing well. Yeah, thank you. Um, tell me, what's it like uh, uh, sitting on top of a uh, tank, uh, stopping its progress into the Land Forces Weapons Expo? It, it was a pretty surreal experience. Um, I'd actually decided... Um, uh, a little while earlier that I was going to take a sort of a more backseat role during the Land Forces Expo, um, I just have uh, a few previous convictions and I just thought other people might want to take the lead and, you know, take the risk of getting the criminal convictions, that kind of thing. But um, just by chance, we happened to see uh, this uh, machine moving in. I, we, we were actually out doing something else and I just saw the machine from about... Um, uh, 300 metres away for about three seconds and we managed to go down and get it just as it was heading inside the convention centre. Uh, now, it's a very small... When I was on top of it, it seemed much more grand than when I realised and saw the photos. It's, it's, it's a much smaller machine, but uh, what got me is that it was a Rheinmetall autonomous um, vehicle, which means that it was basically designed to be an automatic tank. Um, and um, built by built by Rheinmetall, which is a terrible German company that actually profited from the Holocaust of the Jewish people during World War Two. Oh, they just keep going giving, don't they? Yeah, they do. They do, and of course, they're not really giving; they're actually taking um, Australian tax dollars. So uh, this is part of the bounty uh, of uh, theft: two hundred and seventy billion dollars over the next ten years. The Australian government um, is giving to these companies on top of uh, so-called. Um, Defence budget that uh, you know could be could be used to create actual jobs um, and support you know Australian people doing actual good things. Instead, we're using it to create these weapons of death. Yeah, the um, your uh, group. Uh, well, tell me about the Festival of Resistance because it it appears to me that this is a um, convergence of um, quite a few activist groups. Well, yeah, I mean. The Australian uh, anti-war movement is, in some ways, um, you know, uh, it's often a disparate group. Um, I think, generally speaking, the Australian public is quite unaware or quite inactive when it comes to anti-war actions. Um, There is a long history of anti-war resistance, uh, but I think the 2003 Iraq war really broke it. You know, there were millions of people went uh, went out on the streets and um, still didn't manage to stop the war, and I think uh, you know, we hadn't really learned how to actually resist war. You know, governments can still do what they do when they have popular opinion. Um, I was actually in the army at the time in 2003, so it was a long journey for me from um, uh, from being in the army in 2003 to uh, you know sitting on top of a tank in 2021. Um, and you know, I've been doing anti-war resistance for the last eight years. So uh, there's there's a group of people, and we're in solidarity with people all over the world. Uh, last night we had video calls from people in West Papua, 
at the same time talking to people undergoing um, military threats in Colombia. Um, and of course, Australia's involved in, uh, in selling weapons to these places. We also sell weapons to Saudi Arabia which, and the United Arab Emirates, oh, uh, which of course have co- committed horrendous war crimes in Yemen. So there are people interested in all sorts of, uh, all sorts of atrocities and wars that are happening all around the world that Australia is funding and uh, these foreign companies are profiting from. One of the things that uh, your group, uh, your, this, this uh, process uh, of um, uh, going toe-to-toe with these people who uh, dress themselves up in uh, business suits and look like they're terribly responsible individuals, by going there and uh, calling them out... Uh, uh, you make these connections to the actual atrocities that are going on. So, for example, the people who made that tank, it's been documented that they're selling weapons to Indonesian military and mm-hmm. use this against West Palpians. So this is a very powerful message, isn't it? Well, yeah, and again, even even on the West Papua issue, as 3CR listeners probably know the West and are aware of, the West Papua is a... a a very vital issue and a big human rights issue is right right on the doorstep of so-called Australia. Um, uh, but yeah, but yeah, it's it's, it's really important that uh, it's it's sold as you say, such a respectable business and um, STEM education, which is a big part of uh, Australia, which is uh, oh, science, technology, engineering, and math, is often funded in schools and universities by by these big arms companies. So it's sold as respectable and a good thing for kids to be studying and looking into, all under the guise of so-called defence. And um, it, it's worth pointing out that, you know, Australia has not fought a war of defence in 17, since First Nations people uh, in 1788 tried to defend their country from British colonisation. Yeah. You, tell me about your journey. I mean, so obviously you believed that this was about defence because you went to the army. I mean, it was a, a a normal thing to do. Well, I think I think it's really important to point out. Um, one of the things, I guess, is that uh, you know uh, some of the people who are around uh, get involved in activism because they have the time, and the money to do it. I come from a very lower working class background, um, and to me, like the army, you know, I grew up in a country town. Um, uh, I was obviously going to go to uni. I, I had the the marks, but my parents had, you know, it was like a big like, how are we going to afford to send Greg to um, a university in a city like that, and the answer was probably probably not very well or not easily. And so the army was, you know, very much a way out of out of uh, the working class. I didn't wouldn't have used those terms at the time, but it was a way to make money and get a job. So the story that you know Anzac Day was, you know, the most important part of my national identity was. Um, you know, it's very important, uh, uh, partly because of those reasons and mostly because of those reasons. So it's very easy to believe that, you know, this thing that can give you a way out of the working class um, is also good. And, of course, all our movies and TV shows, um, everything from, um, you know, ABC specials on Anzac Day through to, like, the, the you know, the, the comic book heroes that we all watch all, are all basically versions of how great our national militaries are and how they are the, the good people and how we should should support that. So it's a very strong indoctrination from from an early age that we face um, in this country. Um, so I was in the uh, I was at the Australian Defence Force Academy uh, from 2002, and in 2003, of course, the invasion of Iraq happened, and uh, everyone could see, even inside the academy, that um, this was not a good war, and no one really knew why we were going. But people were excited that we actually got to go to war, and that kind of woke me up a bit. 
to the idea that um, uh, actually what we're doing is bad. Um, uh, so I left the army in 2003 and completed completed my uni studies in uh, teaching. Um, at the time, I think I think um, my sort of worldview collapsed. You know, I was like working class. Anzac Day was great, sort of collapsed, and sort of uh, you know in that space, I I converted to Christianity. And, um, yeah, from there, it was just a matter of, like, applying those principles of, like, loving your enemies, loving your neighbour as yourself, and um, do it, doing your best to, like, okay, I live in this very rich country, which has stolen so much from um, people around the world. How do I best live those values of um, and try and protect their lives and protect them as if they were myself? And uh, that kind of was this evolution that led to, you know, doing my first anti-war action where I got arrested in 2012 and... Um, yeah, sort of with some breaks and periods in between for mental health, um, haven't really stopped. Yeah, and I know that uh, you were, uh, when you talked about um, convictions, but uh, you were actually part of a group that uh, laid down uh, to stop trucks going into a coal mine. That was where you, the, you're, a brave, you're a very brave fellow, Greg, I'll have to say. Um. Well, I mean, I have a lot of privilege, um, privilege, right? So I'm, I'm white-skinned. I'm now, like, even though I still don't have much money, I definitely hang out with middle-class folk. Um, and I'd just say that anyone with the privilege, you know, the, uh, someone came up to me last night from West Papua and he was like, oh, thank you so much. Like, you're amazing. I'm like, well, I spent a night in the watch house. My, my legal outcome from sitting on top of that tank will probably be fines, even though I've got, you know, the 15 or 16 criminal convictions. Um uh, you know, compare compare that to living in a village in West Papua. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not very brave. Like I, 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 this is stuff. Like I'd rather not be sitting in a watch house overnight. I'd rather not be going to courts. I'd rather not have the media. You know, I spent five hours on top of a on top of a um, on top of a tank. You know, in a very zen kind of Buddhist position, and then I spent a few moments dancing. And of course, the the mainstream media news report was uh, me holding a bag of chips dancing on top of the tank to make me look as marginalised as possible. I'd rather not deal with all that kind of stuff. You know, I'm trying to outreach to normal people as well. But compared to living in West Papua and having your life stolen or your family stolen or your land stolen, I've got so much privilege. Um, I'm actually not that brave, and this is not something that's hard for people to do. Um, If you're you're around um, this country and you have a bit of privilege... I, I'd actually put it as you have a bit of responsibility. The consequences are not that severe at the moment. They'll get worse with climate collapse. Uh, and we have a chance to get in the way. And if you're not using that uh, well, then, um, uh, you know, you're missing an opportunity to have an actual impact on people who don't have that privilege and don't have those chances. Uh, I'm not brave. I'm just doing what I can with what I have. And I'd encourage everyone out there listening to um, just take a few more risks. It's, it's, not, it's not overly hard. If you've got a little bit of ability, a little bit of privilege, um, just just step up a little, and uh, you know, once you've been arrested once, I, I tell you, it demystifies the whole thing. And um, you know, I've, <laughs> I, I've got trauma and stuff. Like I've been treated badly by police and by the military um, when I've been arrested, but it's really worth it. It's really worth it to um, you know, when, to, just to get in the way a little bit, to help you live out your values as consistently as possible. Oh, that's fantastic! I love that getting getting in the way a little bit. Um, it it's, reminds me of a, a term I heard the other day: falling short of the law. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally, um, totally. Yeah, yeah, and um, the uh, uh, the event is going on till June the third. Did they give you an exclusion um, uh, order or something? No. So I went I went to court yesterday morning. Um, 
not sure what I was going to do with my charges. I sort of, you know, most people tend to tend to plead guilty and just take a fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, uh, I, I got, sort of got a rubbish charge um, that I didn't agree with. So I, I wanted to plead not guilty, but I didn't want the the um, in uh, around um, around uh, Yagara country and Turrbal country. They tend to uh, so called Brisbane. They tend to um, give really bad bail conditions where you can't go to the city, you can't yeah, go yeah. within 500 metres, you can't go to a protest. Uh, so, um, but the, the, they, uh, and they tried to put that on me, otherwise I would have taken bail coming out of the watch house. They tried to put it on me, um, but the magistrate didn't impose those, so I got bail with no, no conditions and was able to leave. Oh, that's fantastic. So, actually, maybe there's some sort of uh, uh, gap appearing in regards to um, what ordinary people think about going off to war when you get a magistrate who does that. Yeah, yeah, hopefully so. I mean, I mean, bail conditions aren't, aren't meant to punish, so they're, they're just kind of doing the right thing. But um, Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, I know. I'm, 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 I'm hoping there's a gap there. I'm hoping they're right. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you can only look on the bright side of life. Um, thanks very much for yeah, talking absolutely. to us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Have a good morning. Yeah, you too. Uh, great. Bye. An important message from the Victorian government. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need and exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving, authorised work or education if you can't do it from home, getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are now mandatory indoors and outdoors. And if you have any symptoms, get tested. A 3CR supporter. On Over the Wall, we're now going to have an interview with Social Security Rights Victoria, SSRV, which is a community legal centre that provides free legal services regarding social security and and Centrelink matters to people across Victoria. And welcome to Dermot, one of the lawyers at SSRV, and welcome to Over the Wall. I'll start by asking you, people who may not be familiar with Social Security Rights Victoria, SSRV, please describe some of the types of legal advice that the organisation provides to people who are recipients of Social Security. Yeah, SSRV is a statewide community legal centre. We're all about providing free legal services in relation to Social Security and Centrelink matters. So, more specifically, it's, it's any problem that people have with the social security system or with Centrelink, with a few exceptions. Don't do child support, for example. In terms of what we do help people with, the two biggest areas are the disability support pension. Almost half of the calls and inquiries we get are DSP related and Centrelink debts. And of course, that's been quite prominent over the last couple of years with the robo-debts and that kind of thing. But it's definitely not limited to that. And any problem with Centrelink, if it's something that we're not able to help with, we'll at least be out of point, but we're in the right direction. Great. And last time we spoke to you on Over the Wall, we discussed the launch of Disability Support Pension, the DSP help resource by SSRV. And can you briefly recap us on this project and how things are going a year later since the launch of the DSP help page? Yeah, sure. Uh, So, yeah, DSP Help is one of our current projects. Uh, With DSP Help, we're using human-centred design and technology to help DSP applicants access the disability support pension. What that's looked like for the first year of the project is we now have dsphelp.org.au, which is an online resource or website that people can jump onto and get 
hopefully all the basic information they need to understand the DSP, to understand what an application looks like and what they need to do and understand how it's assessed. Uh, the important parts of that would be the information about medical evidence, which is going to be key for a DSP application. So we have information they can read about so they, they know what to ask their doctors. And we also have a, a chat bot on there so they can spend some time going through and understanding information about their medical conditions. And using that information, the chat bot produces a medical evidence kit that they can print off or download, take to their doctors and say, look, this is what my conditions are about. This is what the DSP is about. Can you use this as a guide to put together some evidence for me? We are a legal service and there is a legal service component to it as well. So for people that just using a resource online isn't appropriate or they need more support or they've tried that and it hasn't worked and they're going through the appeals process, um, that's where they can come to us and we can assist them in a, a legal capacity as well. Just a side question from that. Like I imagine one of the issues that could come up is getting granted the disability support pension requires proving permanence of conditions. Is that correct? And is that something that you would deal with in the legal sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So to to get onto the DSP, you do need to have a permanent condition. Um, The tricky bit is that permanent doesn't mean permanent. Uh, Permanent means that the condition is fully diagnosed, fully treated and fully stabilised. And each of those terms has its own nuance to it, which is probably a little in-depth for our conversation today. Um, But it's enough to say that if you have a condition that is unlikely to change over the next two years, you could potentially have a condition that is uh, appropriate for the DSP. Thanks, Dermot. And SSRV Victoria also provides another great resource in the DSP toolkit, a resource for medical practitioners and social and community workers who want to help their clients obtain evidence for their DSP application. And could you describe for a worker interested in this resource, what benefits they can find by using the DSP toolkit via the SSRV homepage? Yeah, sure. The DSP toolkit is essentially a series of performer letters uh, based around the impairment tables that are used to assess the DSP. And they provide a great starting point to structure medical evidence. So it's a series of questions that the um, doctor or health worker can answer to show that a person meets the criteria for the DSP. I say that they're a great starting point because they are definitely a great place to start with medical evidence, but it's important to remember that medical evidence for the DSP needs to be sufficiently detailed. It's not enough to simply tick boxes and say, yes, this person satisfies this particular criteria. Doctors and health workers need to explain why they need to go into the detail and and show that they've really grappled with the DSP criteria um, Mm. to, to, to get it over the line. I will also add that that's part of what we're looking at for the second year of DSP help. Um, We're really focusing in on health workers, medical professionals, doctors, uh, to try and come up with um, either resources on the DSP help website or something complementary that can help them further in being feeling confident and comfortable giving medical evidence. Often it's the medical evidence that is the gatekeeping um, or the gatekeeper rather for the DSP. And another great service which connects with that, I imagine, is the Worker Helpline. 
a phone line where workers assisting people with social security issues can call to get advice. And the helpline at SSRV is used by the workers already supporting clients with social security issues. And could you describe how you assist these frontline workers, including perhaps some examples we haven't already discussed of these workers that may face helping clients on social security? In my experience, the most common calls we get on the worker helpline are where there is a Centrelink issue that intersects with something else that the community worker is already assisting with. It could be like a housing worker is seeking assistance for a client with limited income. They're seeking to, to find out whether the client can get anything more from Centrelink is on the right payment so that they can properly assess their housing options. Uh, it could be a financial counsellor who is assisting client, a client with uh, debts generally and finds out that there's one from Centrelink and wants to know specifically how those can be addressed, whether they can be appealed, whether they can be um, waived or something along those lines. It could be a social worker who's looking to link a patient in with support to get onto the DSP before they're discharged from hospital. Knowing that their interaction, the patient and the social worker, is probably going to come to an end and is not going to be ongoing, they want to yet find out what options they have for more ongoing support. Yeah, mostly the services we provide via the worker helpline are information and secondary consultation then and there. So advising the the person and giving them something that they can use in their own work with the, the client that they're helping. Sometimes it's a, it's a bit more in-depth than that, and sometimes it's a referral. It's, it's actually just taking the, um, the client in and linking them in with our other services. Part of the advantage of the worker helpline, though, is we're hoping to upskill other people. We're hoping to build confidence and capability and support workers so that at the very least they know where to send people so that the Centrelink issues are addressed. At the best, they can actually help address them themselves. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. (laughs) 
3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Hi, this is Isaac, and I'm talking to you from a tree seat 40 meters high in the Arenando Plateau. I'm here with other activists because we want to stop what Big Forest is planning to do, which is to destroy 60 new areas in one of the last refuges of unburned forest in East Gippsland. We're calling the state government to protect all unburned areas of East Gippsland. If you want to get involved, contact gecko at gecko.org.au and join the campaign. A 3CR supporter. Absolutely obscene. You would have got a mention in the week that was. Um, okay. Radio. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when, as we muse, cocooned in our homes, well, except those who have no home, but who have looked, have, uh, looked locked down in their favourite little windswept gutter or frost-coated park bench, we all know where the blame for this latest attack on normal society lies. And if we have any doubts, just absorb the wisdom of Lord Rupert of Wapping, whose whopping sin has fingered the culprit so irrefutably. The pejorative Dan. Dan. Okay, he's recovering from a serious back injury. He's on sick leave and... And OK, OK, the latest breakout emanated from a quarantine breach in South True Blue Aussie. And, and OK, the federal lot, Big Supremo, Scuttlebin, Moore, Lash, Son, a.k.a. Scummo and the gang might have abandoned their responsibility for effective quarantine. And, well, OK, OK, Scuttlebin and co. might have stopped up the vaccine program, but they can in no way be blamed for this lockdown. Dan, it's all down to Dan. And if we have the slightest doubt, just read the whopping sin. 160 days and counting, it screamed yesterday. Melbourneians are enduring their 160th day in lockdown. The government plunges Victoria into new shutdown. Note 160th. When it's actually, unless my maths are worse than I thought, actually day one. Note enduring, plunges, just reporting the facts. And the facts point fairly and squarely to Dan, the pejorative Dan, showing how an evil leader can spread his, in this case, his evil, even while lying flat on his back. Moving from an international pandemic to what's really important, one matter that must be upsetting the Lord Rupert team is their footing tipping page. 27 tipsters every Friday, most of them the so-called experts who daily fill page after page with in-depth footy reporting, and the odd guest including one of Dan's ministers who, what tragedy for the Lord Rupert team, who is leading. They're so-called experts who discuss football like it's more important than anything else in the whole world are all trailing in his wake. 
On matters less important, the Socialist Party is divided between the right, proper appellation, and what's laughingly called the left, wrong, wrong appellation, over whether or not to support tax cuts for the filthy rich. Speculation that it will not oppose them because that would alienate the filthy rich and the filthy rich then wouldn't vote for them. Not sure they've noticed, but the filthy rich don't actually vote for them anyway. And thanks to such socialist principles, hardly anyone else does either these days. On the filthy rich of the filthy rich, we all know that capitalism, if nothing else, is consistent. Well, it is. It consistently points out why it can't pay workers the higher wages. It would just love to pay them if only it could. If only evil unions got out of the way. If only the taxes they avoid could be reduced. If only workers could be more productive. If only the government, which has no role in business, could come up with even more corporate welfare. That sort of thing. And in recent years, the smart ones have come up with an inspired means of extracting more from the public purse, the unsolicited tender. You approach the government with an idea for it to hand you lots of money and convince it that it's a great idea. Social win-win, like Jamie Puker in New South Wales coming up with his Barangaroo Casino, which unfortunately, due to a few problems like crime and corruption, can't operate just yet. But you get the gist, and Jamie even managed to con, or sorry, convince them to let him build it on the only land that had been set aside for public open space. Fancy wasting a real estate opportunity on something so ephemeral. And down here, the Westgate Tunnel, also waylaid by a little problem like toxic soil and where or on whom to dump it. Great private road corporate, transfer your hard-earned urban, proposing the tunnel, getting the contract as an unsolicited tender, and then extracting from the government an extra 10 years of ripping off, or sorry, charging motorists to enjoy their daily traffic jam congestion on City Link. That panacea to all our transport problems we were promised would get us from Dandenong to the airport in 36 minutes, which you quite possibly can at three in the morning. Anyway, the government has entered a collaboration with a company to put tracing technology on bridges which can determine their state, their condition, their safety, for instance, and a number of companies who didn't get the deal are complaining loud and long that the government had an obligation to put the job out to open tender. The loud and long be led by, you guessed it, transfer your hard-earned urban, the beneficiary of its own unsolicited tender. Just another example of consistency. And of course, in many ways, it is consistent. Okay, okay, hypocritical, but consistent. A bag of money's all that matters. Unsolicited complaints. No complaints from the Perich brothers, though. They're, they're the beneficiaries of that deal where the government paid them 30 mil for land valued at 3 mil and leased it back to the Perich brothers for a valuation of less than 1 mil, the land reserved for a future second Sydney airport. Well, we're pleased to report a government review has found there was no evidence of criminality and indeed suggests it wasn't a bad deal leaving us to ponder just what they might consider is a bad deal. We're sure the Perich brothers regard it as a very, very, very good deal. 
Now, I know we thought former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, wasn't the absolutely perfect big supremo, but we have to spare a thought for him. Our hearts have to go out to him as we can but imagine the turmoil he's going through this week. There's Belarusian big supremo Alexander Lukashenko giving the world the two-finger salute and hijacking a flight so he could look up at, lock up a journalist who reckons the thousands on the street since they had an election last year who reckon it was rigged and the opposition won. For some reason, questions Lukashenko's assertion that he won almost 90% of the vote. How the people love me. And in Samoa, the opposition which won the election, the fast party, wasn't fast enough to get the parliament before the long-term incumbent who'd lost the election slammed the door and declared he was still big supremo, suggesting one way of resolving the impasse, for which he is but roughly 100% responsible, could be solved by having another election. And then another, and then another, until I win, he indicated his support for the democratic process. Imagine how Donald must feel, two prime examples of big supremos who did not win an election but simply refused to concede, knowing full well that one of the drawbacks with democracy is that sometimes the people simply get it wrong. And don't forget Donald knows he won. I've no idea where these places are, best no idea ever, ever, but I should have sought their advice, best advice ever, ever. Poor Donald. What frustrating heartbreak when others show him how it can be done. And sadly, talk about kicking a man when he's down, more trouble looming for Donald as both the New York Attorney General's office and the Manhattan DA conduct a criminal investigation into a few of his affairs like inflating and or minimising the value of assets to obtain favourable loan terms and tax benefits and investigating hush money payments to women on Donald's behalf. As Donald quite predictably, no, that's not quite right, sensibly said, it's a democratic witch hunt. Biggest witch hunt ever, ever. Salem bleed. By the by, Donald must have the slowest auditor ever, ever, ever. Guinness Book of Records slow because it's now about six years since he promised to produce his tax figures. If I were him, I'd sack him. The God That's Funny You Gotta Laugh award to an anonymous Channel 9 interviewer as Senator Jackie Lumpen admitted she had abused airline staff when refused admittance to some lounge or other, getting herself banned by the airline, leading her to, to apologise. I blew my fuse, she said. Now, I heard this on a radio news service, but as I blew my fuse... Uh, but that the blue, well, you had to say it properly, Kevin. At I blew my fuse, the Channel 9 person fell about laughing. It was the funniest thing ever. A senator abusing workers just doing their job. So if this COVID relapse kills a few workers, for instance, he should be in hysterics. But God, that's funny, you've got a laugh award is on its way, and I'm sure Channel 9 will know which of its in depth reporters to give it to. Or it might even have been one of those morning presenters who delved deep into world affairs. Apparently in her blowing her top rant, Jackie Lumpen also hurled homophobic slurs at the airline which used to be our airline supremo, Alan Joystick, which probably had the Channel 9 presenter just pissing himself laughing.
Now, we can think of many, many, many reasons why we should criticise Alan Joystick, but his sexuality is irrelevant, but not to ex-train killer Jackie. A couple of prominent sports people, a basketballer and a footballer, have been signed up as ambassadors to promote forward 20,000 calories, salt and fat pies. And my word, we can be sure a diet of the product they're being paid doubtless heaps of money to promote should do their form the world of good. Finally, as we endure being plunged into the 161st day of lockdown, we started with the whopping sin. Now, yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, P1, lockdown's one billion hit to business. Lead story. No mention of the hit and potential hit to people's health, only to the health that really matters. Good morning. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Isn't Mia Dyson just fantastic? That was a little piece called uh, Tala Cam. Uh, and uh, we're now coming to the last part of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. And uh, on Thursday night, the uh, Life Campaign, Life uh, Living Income for Everyone, uh, had their budget reply uh, event. Uh, and there was a great lot of speakers from a, a myriad of uh, uh, backgrounds. Lara Watson talking about CDP. There was um, 
Sarah Russell talking about uh, the aged care, um, unaccountable um, uh, large largess given by the federal government to private providers, uh, which uh, have no accountability framework. Uh, so no joy there. Uh, there was uh, Christian O'Connor from the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union who, uh, and also the Anti-Poverty um, Centre uh, saying that, uh, in fact, she was uh, sort of a bit budgeted out in the sense that uh, actually it's really just forming the uh, foundations of the barricades that have to be uh, mounted in order to change uh, what's going on. There were others as well, uh, a speaker from the CPSU, who is uh, who are the people who are being undermined as workers uh, as the social security system is being dismantled. But uh, to begin, to kick off, was Ali Pennington, who is the uh, senior economist at the Australia Institute, and she gave an overview of what was going on in the budget, which is a fascinating unpicking of the, uh, I have to say, the... uh, flim-flam public relations uh, uh, dance that has been coming out of the uh, LMP federal government uh, and uh, probably been uh, uh, cheered on by the general mainstream media's analysis, which is actually very frightening when you consider that uh, we've got a lot of things that we have to deal with in Australia uh, and uh, in big terms. And it's not just about uh, putting more and more money in the pockets of uh, um, big business uh, and uh, rich families. Uh, anyway, uh, Ellie Pennington gives us uh, sort of a, an understanding of the overview. It is a pleasure to speak to you all. Um, and uh, I hope that in this overview, you get a, a good picture of... Um, Clearly what I think is happening through this budget, but more broadly when we want to articulate in, you know, economic terms, but hopefully ones that you can um, access and understand uh, what it, what this current coalition government has been pursuing in its term, what the COVID pandemic has represented for its uh, main goals and how the budget I think is basically reflecting what is a deepening of their overall objective, which is to distribute as much wealth as possible upwards to higher income households, uh, which are typically a voter base, uh, and upwards to businesses. And they have done this through a spectacular reorganisation of our taxing system, taxation system, um, and they've used the COVID pandemic to hand out billions and billions of dollars without any conditions uh, to their friends. And what this does is fuels like much more inequality and it empowers uh, one side and weakens the other. And we're here to talk about what it looks like for the other side. So I've, I'm calling this rich man, get richer. The man is in the brackets, right? Because I am a feminist and an economist and a materialist. And the fact is that at the top, the, the wealthier they get, the more men they become, more male they become. So we're talking about rich and getting rich getting richer and rich men getting richer in this budget. So I wanted to start off by saying what did my bloody head in was as soon as this budget dropped everywhere in the media, we heard this narrative that 
this is an ideological pivot. We've seen some great change in the coalition government, nominally because they're preparing for an election, but uh, they this was absolutely not an ideological pivot, right? Let's take stock of what's happened in this budget. We've seen billions of dollars being given out to predominantly private operators, uh, such as through the aged care, the childcare announcements. And those, uh, when, when those billions have been handed out, little conditions have been attached to them. Traditionally in policy, with if there's more power among workers, they can ask and demand that when money is paid and given, that it's on the condition of providing good full-time jobs, you know, decent conditions for people. But there's, we haven't seen any of that. It's more money to friends. We've seen huge tax cuts to businesses and higher income households at the value of $30 billion every year in this budget. And that's predominantly through the stage three income tax um, uh, layer of the, of the program they announced last budget. But this is now for the wealthiest households. There's been no increase to income supports. $100 billion is, has been cut from personal incomes. So of all the incomes that working people need at this point in time, which we saw predominantly through the JobKeeper and the uh, coronavirus supplement, they have cut them by $100 billion in the year. Those cuts happened in the lead up to the budget, but they're still part of the picture. We've seen the continuation of wage suppression. And I think it's important to as something for people to keep in mind. Big spending doesn't mean that the uh, agenda has changed because actually undermining public uh, the, the safety net through you know income supports and public institutions like education and Medicare that's a very expensive agenda it's very expensive um, the amount of money we provide to private healthcare, for instance to try and undermine the Medicare system that's something to keep in mind and even though what we're hearing from the government is that there's been this great and glorious recovery in the post-COVID rebound employment is you know actually up to pre-pandemic levels even this economic narrative is a very, very flimsy one. And this is what um, has been focused on at the Centre for Future Work is to pull apart this, this story and poke the holes in it that are, you know, they're, they're gaping holes, really. First of all, what the government is saying when they say they expect the economy to grow in the next uh, year, what they are assuming is that workers are going to continue to spend lots of money. They think that consumer spending is going to drive 70% of our growth in the next um, financial year. But they also, in their assumptions, say that the main sources of income, which are wages for people to spend, they actually predict that, well, they assume that uh, there will be a, a large and sustained cut in real wages uh, for two years behind CPI. So how can these two things come together? Right? There's that glaring co contradiction at the heart of the budget. Part of this story is that we have reopened the economy. It's happened much faster and stronger than we were expected. And that's partly because there was a lot of pent-up demand in part through lockdowns and people have gone out and spent what they could and what they had put aside. But there's that spending power is not going to hold us all the way through. And now we've seen, of course, our failure at mass vaccination or well, the federal government's failure at mass vaccination has led us highly vulnerable um, and Victoria being a uh, case in point right now. Um, so what we're seeing is an economy that's entirely uh, functioning on one cylinder. It's just all of the, the investment that it depends on is worker spending power right now. And that is a very flimsy, flimsy, weak recovery. Um, other types of uh, business recovery we would expect to happen, sorry, um, of 
of uh, areas of economic activity would expect to make up all of the different GDP, all the different parts of our national income, we'd expect business to be doing a whole of a, a lot more, right? But look what they've been doing in uh, the recovery in 2020, the last six months of 2020, absolutely bloody nothing. They haven't put any of their booming profits back into investment, right? So when we say GDP growth is up, 95% of that recovery has come from consumer spending. Government services spending is low, housing investment low, business investment the lowest of all. In fact, our trade balance has gone backwards. So what are government saying is going to happen in 21 or 22? Well, they think that workers are going to keep spending. They think that 70% of that recovery is going to come from workers. And still, they, for all the billions handed out to business, they still don't expect business to be putting ploughing any of that public money that they've been gifted into new jobs, into long-term investment. And how is it that we'll have this recovery when they don't think that we'll, uh, their assumption is that we won't have the wages to do it. And they can assume that because they also are diminishing the ability of workers to organise uh, and overall creating an economy where workers have no bargaining power. And so it's planned that we will have no wage increase. And of course, they're lobbying the Fair Work Commission to prevent an increase in the minimum wage, which would uh, also turn this around. Um, alongside that, that contradiction at the heart of the budget, we've seen a bunch of these half measures because basically like big campaigns and, and uh, growing pressure on government to respond to crises that are coming up everywhere. We had the Aged Care Royal Commission, which um, was at the conclusion of you know, many, many years of crisis. They've now government's committed $17.7 billion over five years. Uh, research that we did at the Centre for Future Work said that even to meet the very minimum of the Royal Commission's recommendations to, you know, make sure that basically old people don't have maggots coming out of their wounds and people in the sector have the skills and the wages they need, you need 10 billion at least per year. So the government is only providing a third, around a third of what's needed. Um, of course, there's been no improvement in the paying conditions of workers attached to that big money going out the door. In the education space, um, vocational education, $3 billion still been taken out since 2013. We've seen job trainer continue to be used to prop up uh, a very uncoordinated private delivery of vocational education. The, the, the program is really poorly designed. Um, and then we've seen the continued attack on the public university. What tiny remnants remain of public education in our university system are continuing to be attacked, 9.3% cuts in our funding to public unis. For all the rhetoric of a, uh, needing to get more gas out of the ground to rebuild manufacturing in Australia, there is again no viable industry plan in the budget. And, uh, you know, last time we, we built up manufacturing in Australia actually off the back of the, the Spanish flu, the last time we had a pandemic, because what happened is that people got angry about the fact that we couldn't make our own vaccines. And so vaccine, the need to manufacture vaccinations was a really big, um, something that really provoked us to develop a manufacturing capacity. But still, we, we have a gas-fired recovery, which produces no jobs and is just exporting to uh, other countries. And we don't have any vaccines. The other thing we heard from the government as a product of like a combination of huge growing crises uh, relating to women's economic um, security and safety was this was going to be a women's budget. And this was because the last budget uh, was very much focused on hard hats, even though there was a recognition that women copped it the worst in the, in the, the worst of the pandemic in terms of losing more jobs, more hours, they're more likely to have to drop out of the labour market altogether to care uh, for family and for children. 
And so there was this pressure on the government to come up with actually a, a proper attempt at um, addressing women's economic uh, insecurity. Um, and what else we had in the lead up to this budget is months of national anger about the sexual harassment crisis. Uh, obviously, the one in Parliament, which continues to bubble, but then it opened up a broader discussion about sexual harassment on the job for women. And that, that created an environment where there was a push for government to provide actual, genuine structural reform um, on issues of gender inequality. And so from the $96 billion worth of uh, taxing and spending measures, uh, what is women's worth? They gave us $3.4 billion in this economic security statement, 3.6% uh, of all the funding they put out. So um, you think about what kind of decades of structural inequality we're talking about that women face in employment, in superannuation, um, you know, in their safety. And it's pretty clear, like, you're not going to do much with that kind of money, right? So what we saw for women was very much a short-term sweetness permanent rip-off. The government wants to create the uh, idea of comprehensive policymaking by throwing lots of small amounts of money at lots of different things, but actually no real reform has happened. Um, 1.7 billion for childcare, far short of what's needed. Very to token mentorship and women in business spending, uh, which doesn't mean anything to the vast majority of working women in Australia. Uh, big increases in DV funding, which was a small win, but then of course it cuts back in the forward estimates, 99%. Um, it's cut back in 2025-26. And at the same time as these very small things have been thrown at um, women, there's been huge permanent change being made in the tax system that is siphoning wealth upward. So I've, I mentioned the, the stage three tax cuts that are going to proceed, uh, which mostly benefit high income households, but also analysis by the Australian Institute has shown that uh, men receive double the benefit, even in that one um, element of the budget alone, they're getting 12 billion per year that flows in benefits. Compare that 12 billion flowing to rich men to the 1.7 billion for all working women to improve the childcare system. It shows you what kind of scale we're looking at. We saw um, in some in steps forward in superannuation changes, 4.7 million to uh, act, allow women to uh, earn super if they were er working, uh, sorry, earning below $450 a month. That increases their super balances by about 4.7 million, but compare that again to 29.5 billion that flows every year in tax concessions to men uh, through the superannuation system and in fact 18 billion more than for women this is why in my op-ed um, on budget night i called bullshit on this idea that this was a women's budget and i said this is not one uh, a pink pill that i am going to swallow i um, wanted to point this one out because it was probably one of the most uh like infuriating of all of the elements of uh, offering to women is for single mothers who are some of the uh like the most struggling layers of our community in terms of their um, higher than than broader population dependence on, uh, you know, income support payments while they're raising children. Um, in fact, 40% of all single parents rely on, on income supports predominantly for their income. So that's pretty high. And what government said is um, actually the ticket to your security is we'll give you the ability to pay for a house with a 2% deposit instead of normal with 20%. So I did the numbers on this. And uh, if we assume that uh, we don't want those families to be paying um, above, you know, 31% of all of their income on housing, which is the definition of housing stress, then 
forget housing altogether. For a single parent to even get a unit at a median price in Melbourne, they need $90,000 a year. They need to earn that kind of money. And how do we then match that up with single parents' median annual incomes, which are $77,000? That's, that's including, that's the median, right? That's different if you're just relying on the $425 a week for uh, the single um, parent payment. So it's $13,000 more than that is in reach for like the median single parent. What would have been way better is for the 100,000 women who are relying on very low parenting payments is if you just lifted that uh, payment. It's like the quickest way to improve the lives of 100,000 women and single parents. What do women really need? Higher incomes, better jobs, more jobs. Uh, and that's what didn't come in the budget is investment in social infrastructure that was uh, going to meet the need in the community uh, and one that would actually address, you know, the, the demand and the desire for Australians to expand our public services. Australian women need wage-boosting policies. We need to lift the minimum wage to revitalise the awards. They need collective bargaining reform so they can actually bargain uh, to get better outcomes on the job. And they, we need laws that don't criminalise very basic union activity that is legal in most of the democratic world, but in Australia is um, brutally, uh, you know, uh, suppressed. Women need proper universal free public childcare, none of these like, you know, tic-tac half measures. We need to rebuild our public TAFE and universities and uh, women need a national public housing program who disproportionately make up the 500,000 people waiting for public housing right now and a retirement income system that doesn't bake in the inequality that they face on the job already. And um, I'll start moving towards the ending, guys. Because what this is, I guess, the getting we're talking about improving the lives for women, which is improving the lives of working people uh, more broadly. And um, really, there's no way about this because given the 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 government's very flimsy uh, like assumptions around the state of our economy right now, the way they think we're going to rebuild, the way they want to present it as being strong, and basically everyone should shut up. Uh, that's not going to last. Like the, the contradictions and the problems that we face in terms of a growing powerful layer of society through rich, increasingly richer households and businesses, they are pursuing ruthlessly an agenda to make people poorer so they can make more money. And that's not going to stop. So we really need a, a public, a public sector-led reconstruction program we talk about reconstructing an economy not not tinkering with what we have now we need to rebuild it uh, with public institutions at the heart of that and that means committing to creating an economy of full employment um, repairing our health system and a, a bunch of you know things that I've raised of issues that women need to have addressed for them but it's getting to the housing skills and training and you know obviously addressing the dire need for a climate transition investing in that and, uh, yeah, this isn't going to happen because uh, people in policy do it for us. It's going to happen because we organise for it. And uh, this is why at the Centre for Future Work we focus on providing ideas and analysis and, you know, tools essentially to arm up campaigns and um, the labour movement to be able to pursue these goals for themselves. And we'll do that alongside you, of course. Um, and I think to get there we need cross-union civil society campaigns for a people-led economy. Um, we need to be thinking about a new model of economic growth that has that is more public-led, is more democratic, that is focused on meeting human needs. And I, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, New Zealand 
um, Aotearoa because I keep a, an eye on our friends across the ditch and I think that they've been showing a lot of leadership in this cross-union civil society work. The Living Wage Campaign is something that I, I think it's a really um, inspirational one. It's, it brings together anti-poverty organisation, welfare rights groups and unions organising in low-wage sectors and they've got some significant wins across Woolworths, the equivalent of Woolworths. They've got living wages at McDonald's where we've got, you know, 13-year-olds on, you know, $7, $8 an hour. They've got 13-year-olds on $23 an hour. And it's something that is now going to be broadened out because New Zealand has introduced sectoral bargaining. So they've now got a new weapon and a new framework to broaden out the campaign for a living wage. Uh, to increase the number of jobs and to improve the quality of those jobs. And it's something that brings together the whole community. So thank you. I'll leave it there. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of Community Powered Radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon. Community Powered Radio. And it's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. And uh, I have to say, uh, after listening to Ali Pennington from the... Uh, Future, uh, Centre for Future Work, you have to wonder if uh, the LNP federal government is deliberately destabilising the country or they are just incompetent. Uh, and uh, the we this morning uh, went to Sydney with uh, the uh, Willow Grove uh, Community Action, uh, which is seeing the uh, resurrection of green bands. The community is really mad about uh, what's going on there. Uh, we went to Queensland to talk to Greg Rolls, who is a fantastic activist, uh, The uh, who um, stopped a tank getting into uh, the... Um, what do they call it? They call it the Land Forces Weapons Expo. And uh, he's part of a, gr- a group of people who are there uh, for a week-long festival, Disrupt Land Forces. We moved on to uh, Over the Wall that looked at uh, Social Security um, and uh, how you can uh, get advice. Uh, this is the week that was followed up, and then we finished with Ali Pennington. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and I thought I'd go out with Stand for Something, Ziggy Ramo. At the white man's school, what are the children taught? Are they told of the battles our people fought? Are they told how our people died? Are they told why our people cried? Australia's true history is never read, but the black man keeps it in his head. You can feel my rage, yeah I'm red hot. You either get my point or you get point blank shot. Cause I ain't forgot. You see black lives is nuisance. Broke your own laws, suspended constitutions. Fueled by hate, strapped up ready for war. But mama told me love's the only thing we're fighting for. Uh. 
but I ain't felt hope in a long time. Black lives ain't made nothing in a long time. So I'm all up on your face, on your palate, how it tastes. When it take another life to go to waste for y'all to get up to date with the state of inequality between race. But it's not about black and white, it's about all humans getting basic human rights. So I swallow my pride and look you in the eye, give you my time, even if I never change nothing. My people always equal, so we always stand for something. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.